Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering, delivering made-from-scratch hot meals and individual boxed lunches for fast distribution to offices, warehouses, and factories, even on nights and weekends. Details are at grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. Today is Friday, August 11th. Coming up, how Kansas City's 311 hotline serves the community and how it could improve. If you don't know what resources are even available to you in the first place because, you know, maybe government materials aren't translated into your first language, then it makes it more difficult for you to even know that the 311 process exists. We'll take a look at some of the most common complaints made to the hotline for city services. But first, some headlines. Some Kansas Cityans are calling for a workers' bill of rights after the death of a worker at the former AT&T building downtown. KCUR's Noah Taborda reports. Jose Rodolfo Garcia fell 14 stories down an elevator shaft in July. The Kansas City Star reports the old office building is being converted to apartments. Workers at the site have reported concerns about a lack of safety training. Fair Contracting Alliance Executive Director Manny Abarca, who's also a Jackson County legislator, says the death demands action. There need to be triggers set in place to protect workers on construction sites and work sites across the city and the county to make sure that people come home at night. A worker's bill of rights is just the start. OSHA is investigating and has six months to issue any citations and fines. A new Missouri law is poised to offer tax incentives for movie productions in the state. But 100 days of writer strikes in Hollywood have left local filmmakers frustrated that it won't make a difference. After months of heated labor disputes, negotiations with studios have stalled. Meanwhile, five-time regional Emmy Award winner Michelle Davidson was in Jefferson City trying to get the film incentive called the Show Mo Act passed. It's going to go into effect on August 28th, and we will have that lucrative incentive to attract film productions, and we can't use it. Davidson says she supports the strikes, but Missouri creatives can't use the new tool until the strike is resolved. Kansas education leaders are considering easing some requirements for people to become teachers. Suzanne Perez of the Kansas News Service reports. Kansas teachers have to pass a test called the Principles of Learning and Teaching, along with specific exams in each subject area. An advisory group has proposed dropping that first test altogether and offering new options for people who fail a subject area test. Kansas Board of Education member Ann Ma says looking at an applicant's GPA or student teaching experience makes more sense than testing. And I think if there's an alternative way that really shows with some rigor that they do know the content, then I think both of these are really good options. The move is aimed at helping combat the worst ever teacher shortage in Kansas. Last spring, the state reported more than 1,600 vacancies. The Kansas City Council passed two local gun restrictions yesterday as it deals with an escalating homicide rate. One proposal bans machine guns, firearm silencers, and devices that turn guns into fully automatic weapons. Another would make it illegal to give weapons and ammunition to minors. First District Councilman Nathan Willett was the only no vote on the ordinances. The proposed ordinance may in fact preempt state law. This would lead us on a path um, towards a legal battle that would rack up hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. The mayor's office maintains the ordinances do comply with state law. Officials say the legislation would help police by creating another arrestable offense to get more criminals and weapons off the streets. We'll be back after this. 
Okay, so you may call yourself a Kansas Cityan, but did you know the famous chocolate sandwich cookie that predates the Oreo was born right here in Kansas City? Come to a live podcast event with a people's history of Kansas City to get the story of Hydrox Cookies, the OG Oreo, complete with a taste test. We'll be at Rochester Brewing and Roasting Company in the Crossroads Friday, March 29th. Get your tickets now. They went crazy quick last time we did this. Go to kcur.org slash cookies. See you there. Since 2007, Kansas Cityans have been able to contact 311 to report issues with city services like trash pickup and street maintenance, or issues with their neighbors not keeping up with property codes. And between March 2021 and July 2023, they've made more than 300,000 reports to the hotline. Journalists Julie Frijad of Flatland and Josh Merchant of The Beacon analyzed all of those reports over that time period. They sat down with me to tell me what they found and how 311 could better serve the city's refugee and non-English speaking communities. So what does 311 do in Kansas City? 311 is the city's complaint hotline. Um, so it's the, the line that people can call or submit reports to over the MyKCMO app or um, variety of different ways. You can send in a tweet to report issues like potholes or street maintenance, damaged trees, and um, there's stuff like property violations, so like broken windows, overgrown weeds. Um, a variety of different things to sort of reach the Kansas City departments that are capable of um, addressing those issues. And you investigated the most common 311 complaints. What did you find? Right. So we looked into the last about three years of data um, and we found, among other things, that some of the top complaints include things like property violations. Um, Missed trash is also a really common complaint. Um, And then water service, street maintenance, so things like potholes also top the list. Which parts of the city contacted 311 the most? That was far and away the the third district. I think um, it makes up about a a sixth of the city's population, but it accounted for 25 percent, roughly a quarter of um, the citywide complaints. It covers most of the neighborhoods east of uh, Truist Avenue, the historic uh, redlining, uh, dividing line in Kansas City. Some areas of the historic Northeast, so some of the, you know, immigrant refugee communities. So you guys found some disparities in the amount of time it took to resolve these complaints based on location. What kind of disparities did you find? The disparities were primarily seen in neighborhoods that were east of Troost. Um, And those kinds of disparities, when we talk about those, we're talking about average resolution time for cases. Um, And that's based off of the median amount of days that it takes for a case to be marked as resolved in the system. Something to keep in mind, however, with that is there's a lot of things that can go into the delay of a case being resolved, Um, one of which could be the fact that, you know, in the third district, there's a ton of property violations, where in some of the other districts where they have, you know, quicker resolve times, they're seeing more things like, you know, trash pickup that's being missed. Um, And so that could account for some of the disparities that we saw. But as far as, you know, where those lie, it's primarily in the third and the fifth district where we're seeing those resolution times take a little bit longer. Do we know why they take longer in those areas? Yeah, so that could be 
potentially because of the types of issues that are being reported in those areas. Um, like I said, property violations. We also did a little bit of looking into absentee um, landlords. So that was a huge topic that came up when we were talking to people were these landlords that were difficult to contact. And so it was pretty difficult for them to resolve these cases in a you know timely manner because they couldn't get into contact with the people that they needed to. Um, so those are just a couple of the factors that could contribute to a delay in resolution time. For example, like a pothole or a trash pickup, I think the average resolution time is somewhere around two to three days versus for a property violation, it's 55 days. So if you have a ton of property violations, that's a ton of cases that take almost two months to resolve, which really skews the the resolution time higher. Mm-hmm. And you found that property violations made up a pretty big proportion of these complaints. Why are these so difficult to resolve? A variety of reasons. Um, so for one thing, again, Julie mentioned the, the absentee property owners. Um, those are people who live out of state or um, you know, limited liability companies that are registered in other states that can potentially hide some contact information, hide you know, property owner identification, which sort of leaves the city with the only option to go through the due process of going through court and getting you know, warrants and, and things like that, which takes a whole lot longer than coming in and just grabbing a couple bags of trash. So property violations are a pretty broad category, and they can include a variety of things for a variety of homeowners. How is the city approaching all of that? Some of these issues pop up in, um, you know, as we mentioned, the gaps in property owners, um, things like, you know, a house that doesn't have anyone living in it, um, but it's not boarded up. And and so there's, you know, issues of squatters or or overgrown weeds or, you know, damaged windows, things like that. Um, I remember Brian Platt said that Typically, those kinds of things have to go through court and due process, and it's frequently a matter of just documenting communication um, as part of the legal process. But when it comes to um, other kinds of issues where it's someone whose roof is leaking because they can't afford to fix it, um, that's sort of an issue where the city's exploring different ways of addressing those problems. And so there was a pilot program in 2020 between Jerusalem Farm and some of the refugee communities in the Northeast, I think it was Indian Mound in particular, Um, where they would have representatives of Jerusalem Farms be the first responders to those kinds of violations instead of city code enforcers. Um, And in those situations, they would would show up at this person's house, check it out, see if there's any actual code violations there. And if there was a code violation, they might offer some of their resources to help repair it because um, that's sort of one of the things that both council members uh, Park Shaw and council member Boo um, spoke about in our interviews with them was, you know, if you could afford to pay the fine, you would probably repair your house, you know. Um, and instead of burdening people who already don't have as have as many resources with just fines and court dates that that sort of snowball one on top of the other, you can just step in and instead of punishing them, try to support them in whatever you, way you can. And Park Shaw said that they're also exploring a program similar to that in in Blue Hills, um, down in the Fifth District as well. And you also spoke to some people who said that they had trouble communicating with 311 because they couldn't speak English. What did they say about that whole process? Right. So one of the residents we talked to, um, their first language is Spanish. Um, And the issue that um, she primarily had was when she would call 311, it would read the menu off in English and give you the option to hear the menu in Spanish. So, you know, she would ask to hear the menu in Spanish because that's the language that she speaks best. Um, And it would read the menu back in Spanish to her. However, after that, she was connected with a call taker who only spoke English. Um, So even though there was that option for her to, you know, 
he communicated with in Spanish. Um, she ended up talking to call takers who spoke English. She did say that for the most part, they could understand her pretty well. Um, and, you know, things were able to get resolved to a degree. I think she had a couple complaints that still um, haven't been addressed or um, were never resolved. So, Does the city plan to make 311 more accessible to people who don't speak English? Yeah, so when we spoke with uh, the city manager, Brian Platt, um, he talked about sort of ahead of the World Cup in 2026, they expect people from all over the world to be coming to Kansas City. So, you know, Brazilians, people from, you know, France, people from Egypt, speaking a wide variety of languages. And he talked about the, you know, importance of making sure that city services like 911 calls, especially 311 calls, are, are available to people who speak those languages. And sort of the, a deeper kind of underlying problem as well is that, um, particularly in the Northeast where you have refugees and immigrants who this is their first time living in, you know, an American city, they don't really know as much about, you know, municipal government or the laws and, you know, what is a code violation and all of those different things. If you don't know what resources are even available to you in the first place because, you know, maybe government materials aren't translated into your first language, then it makes it more difficult for you to even know that the 311 process exists or, you know, what are the, the different elements that are required to, to make a report. That was Josh Merchant of the Kansas City Beacon and Julie Frijat of Flatland. You can read their story about Kansas City's 311 program at kcur.org. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Trevor Grandin and KCUR Studios. It's edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. For more local news from Kansas City's NPR station, visit kcur.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Oreo is the most famous cookie in the world, but few people remember the product that it blatantly ripped off, a creation of Jacob Luce in Kansas City. Not only was Oreo this copycat of Hydrox, it was also built on the back of the company that Jacob had founded himself. How Kansas City started the cookie wars. Hear the whole story on the podcast, A People's History of Kansas City. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.